All right. Good morning, Redemption Gateway. My name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and I get to open up the word for us this morning. We are in the third week of a four-week series called Relational. The first week, Luke talked about um, our God and how our God is relational, how Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our God is love, and the reason he's able to be love, and the reason that love comes before power is because God is love in and of himself, that he is in a perfect, healthy relationship with himself, and out of the abundance of that relationship, out of the abundance of that love, he creates our universe and that our universe is love. Down to the various small particles and the way that molecules interact, the very fabric of all of existence is relational. And today we're going to talk about our vision. A while ago, we talked about how our vision is over the next 10 years, we want to become the best friend that our community has. And I want to talk about how that is a fundamentally relational thing, not just a programmatic thing, not just an initiative or administrative thing, but it's all about how we are going to relate to our community. And next week, uh, Vicki and I are going to have a bit of a dialogue, a conversation about how our, our mission to birth and strength and healthy disciples, how even that is relational. And the way that God grows us in holiness and commitment to him is actually a relational process. But I just, I just want to uh, draw back as a step here and think about this idea of being committed to something relational. One of, one of my favorite memories growing up, and it's not even just a memory, it's, it's kind of like a, a series of memories. It's probably my late elementary school years, early middle school years. My dad was the head uh, varsity basketball coach at Chandler High School, and he did that for I don't know, a long time, sometime between 10 and 20 years. I don't remember. But I remember in particular when I was uh, in that late elementary, early uh, middle school age that I loved going to the Chandler High School Friday night basketball games. And me and some of my friends would go, and we were the epitome of the worst nightmare for referees possible. It was like we had these squeaky little cracking voices, but we'd bring our water bottles and bang them and yell obscenities at the referees until our moms heard and then we'd stop. But we were so emotionally invested in Chandler High basketball that we had really had no real idea of even what was going on or the significance of it or, or on, on the global scale. It was the number one thing to me. And it was super fun. I knew all the stats of all the high school players who the older I get, the more I realize how, how bad a lot of those players were. But a couple of them were very good, went on to play college, and I was super invested in outcomes. And I remember watching my dad march back and forth and, and calling plays and yelling at people. And every now and then he'd get ejected from games for doing things that are frowned upon slash not allowed. And I, I just remember getting riled up and super bought into the outcome of Chandler High basketball. And why? I was a fourth grade kid. You know, the NBA was better. Basketball, NCAA was more engaging and more significant, but somehow Chandler High basketball mattered a lot to me. I knew, you know, we didn't like Gilbert High. We didn't like, certainly didn't like Hamilton High. There's all these uh, rivalries that I got bought up into just because of Chandler High basketball. And the answer is because when you're a child and you feel loved by your father and you love your father, you start to care about and be emotionally invested in the things that your father cares about that his mission becomes your mission, that your goals become, that his goals become your goals. And I was so wrapped up and invested in Chandler High basketball, not just because I like basketball, not just because I like Chandler High in and of itself, like compared to the other schools, but because my dad was a coach, because I knew he loved me and because I loved him and I felt loved by him. 
and I knew that he was invested in me and invested in this mission, invested in this goal. And so I got bought into it. I got super wrapped up in Chandler High basketball that now that he's no longer the coach, I don't even, I couldn't even tell you if they've been good or bad for the last 15 years. But the while he was the coach, I cared. I really did. And when we think about our, our whole vision of being the best friend that our community has. Not necessarily a friend as they define it, but a friend as God defines it. That if we want to, in the next 10 years, work towards becoming a community of people that are really a friend to our community and our neighbors, the the whole means or the whole energy or the whole drive of the reason we're doing that is that God has a heart and a vision and a goal for our community, both as individuals and as groups and as a people and as an area. God loves them. He wants them to know that he loves them. He wants to see well-being in their lives. He's he's actively working towards well-being and flourishing in that community. And that's so God's desire for our community will become our desire community. And so here's our big idea I want to hit on today as we talk through Jeremiah is that our relational connection to God. And by that I mean our knowing that God loves us and loving him back. Our relational connection to God transforms us into the friend that our community needs. Maybe not the friend our community wants, maybe not the, the, the friend our community is asking for, but the friend our community needs. And if we think that we're going to go out and just be a good friend to our community, just of our own initiatives, our own efforts, uh, we're fooling ourselves. This is not about us just drumming up things to do and taking initiative where we have no place taking initiative. This is about us being aligned with the heart of God Most High, seeing ourselves as loved by Him, and actively connecting to him, reciprocating that love. And that that action, that connection, that relational process is actually the way in which we are going to be the friend that our community needs. So let me pray for us. I'm going to walk us through this text. We're going to see God's heart for Babylon. And we're actually going to talk about uh, two things that good friends don't do and two things that good friends do do, all in the context of us being relationally connected to our Father in heaven. So let's pray. Father, thank you for the prophet Jeremiah who said hard things, said hard things his whole life and then died not really getting to see any of the fruit. Uh, thank you for your word and how it speaks throughout cultures, throughout time, and how we now can read uh, this document written a very, very long time ago, and yet it still speaks with absolute relevance to our cultural moment. I pray that as we gather uh, throughout our cities, throughout our area, um, as even some people tune in on vacation far away, God, I pray that our hearts would be stirred and our affections would be piqued and that we can feel closer to you, uh, not just because we want to feel good, but because we want to be um, energized along your mission and your plan. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. Amen. So the first thing that we're going to talk through here is just I'm going to get to the, the context of the background of the book of Jeremiah. So Jeremiah is writing this letter to people who have been exiled by Babylon. Babylon is really, really bad. They're not open to God's ideas. They're not open to Jewish influence. They're not open to Judeo-Christian values as we talked about here. Babylon actually um, here is actually speaking about a real place called Babylon, but even if you read further on in the book of Revelation, Babylon becomes like the metaphor for cities or organizations or agencies or nations that directly stand opposed to God. That when Jesus comes back at the end of the book of Revelation, the cry is Babylon the Great is overthrown. 
alone. And so it's almost kind of like nowadays that if you said like, um, you know, this type of behavior is just like Hitler. Like we all know that Hitler was the worst and Hitler is bad. And so comparing something to Hitler is like the worst. But the Bible does that with Babylon, that Babylon was the worst. And this is in this text actually addressing the, the real initial context. But then later on, we're going to see how Babylon in, in, the, in the Bible actually becomes a metaphor for nations that are idolatrous and ideologically opposed to God's ideas. And this is where Israel is in this moment. They have just been exiled into Babylon. They are the faith minorities. They are the power minorities. They have very little voice in affecting Babylon. And God is addressing here Israel. When you are exiled in the context of Babylon, here is how you are to behave and here's how you conduct yourselves. And there's a variety of human tendencies that are actually addressed here in this text about what one of the negative ways we tend to respond to exile. And the first one is actually something good friends do not do. So here's the first thing good friends do not. Good friends do not minimize the reality of present difficulty by taking the Lord's name in vain. This is a universal human tendency. I get swept up in this. You get swept up on this. Maybe not all of you, but a lot of you. What ends up happening is you go, things are not that bad. Here's the one article I found that backs up my view. This is why it's not that bad. We can all calm down. And part of the reason we do that is because it's exhausting. It's tiring. It's hard to keep feeling sad about all that is bad in the world. And so what ends up happening, and one of the reasons that Jeremiah even writes this, is he says there are these false prophets. And he says in verse 8, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams they dream. For it is a lie and they are, that they are prophesying in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. question is, what are these false prophets saying? What's the lie that Israel's tempted to believe in exile underneath Babylon the Great. You can flip back just briefly to Jeremiah 28, in particular verse 11. Um, Hananiah spoke in the presence of the people saying, this is the false prophet, thus says the Lord, even so I will break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, from the neck of all the nations within two years. The lie was Yes, it's bad now, but it's going to be over soon and we don't need to worry about it. it. Within two years, things will be back to normal. Within two years, we'll be out of this exile. Within two years, we'll be back in the promised land and things will be back to the status quo that we all enjoyed and loved. Within two years. Well, what's the reality? Jeremiah 29 verse 10. When 70 years are completed for Babylon... So God is saying it might be like this. It will be like this for 70 years. The false prophets are saying it will only be two years. What's the difference here? Why do we want to minimize? Why do we want to say it's not as bad as God says it is? It's not as bad as reality says it is. Why are we inclined this direction? There's a variety of reasons. I think about it even, even this week when we decided to go back fully online. I wished I felt really sad, but if I'm honest, I mostly just kind of felt a little bit numb. It's like, oh, just another thing happening that I don't like. I'm kind of out of my disappointment juice. I don't have any more sadness left in me, and I kind of just felt numb for a little bit. It reminds me about even when, I had, you know, when my son was recently born, and I came back to work after about 
uh, three, four, five weeks and I started sitting with people and people come into my office and I'm, you know, giving them the bottle at 11 p.m. and giving them the bottle at 2 a.m. and, you know, trying to help my wife survive. And I am, you know, operating on three to four hours of sleep for uh, a month and a half and people sit in my office and tell me heart-wrenching, sad things, friends, coworkers, people in the church, and I was just numb. I, had a, I, like, I knew in my mind they're saying sad things, but in my, like, my body was like, I don't even have the energy to cry. And that ended up like hurting a lot of people when people sit with you and tell you devastating hard things and you're just disaffected and numb and disengaged that I wanted to be sad, but I just felt numb. Sometimes we minimize because we're numb. We're going, I'm sick of it seeming like it's bad. I'm sick of calling it bad. And so I'm just going to minimize it. That might be one reason we tend to minimize things. Um, another reason is we're just trying to angle for a voice. Like these people take the Lord's name in vain. Thus says the Lord. This is a violation of one of the Ten Commandments. To take the Lord's name in vain. To use God's word to support your pre-existing position. It's not just you know, murmuring a curse word with God's name in it. But it's actually invoking God's name so that your will be done. I've seen this happen all over the place the last couple of weeks, couple of months. I've had non-Christians reach out to me and say, hey, I have a Christian friend. She posted on Facebook. The virus isn't a big deal. We should just have faith. And they asked me about it. Is that how faith works? Is you know, we should trust Jesus? You know? And the people who are posting this, like their small businesses are suffering. People who posted this, they're isolated from family and friends. People who posted this, I'm not denying that they're suffering, but there's this temptation to say, we sh- things should not be the way they are. Take the Lord's name. And so non-Christians talk to me, and, and you know, I say, well, you know, do these people wear seatbelts? Do these people take their vitamins? Do these people eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Like, yeah, yeah, we trust the Lord, but we also can be cautious. And we need to be really slow to begin invoking faith or God's word or his name just to try to make things seem more in line with my presuppositions and the status quo. There's a minimizer in all of us. There's a minimizer in these false prophets. And especially when we go into Babylon, when Christianity is not taken seriously, where in fact believing to, holding to historic Christian sexual doctrines or teachings make you unemployable, when believing in conversion that people must repent and believe in the Lord Jesus, when, when believing that the scriptures speak truth into our cultural moments, when, when holding on to Christ in the midst of changing times is laughable, we need to realize that we might love the way things are politically in our nation, but there is a trend towards Babylon that we need to recognize that when we are no longer taken seriously, when we're pushed out of the public square, Will we try to minimize? Will we just fight tooth and nail and claw to uh, deny the fact that we are being marginalized? How will we react? Because the flinch of Israel when they were sent into Babylon was to minimize. And I think the flinch of the church as America becomes more and more Babylonian will regularly be tempted to minimize our present realities, minimize our present situations. So if the main thing that good friends do not do, the first thing, is to not minimize our present realities. Part of that is just because to be honest about the way, way things are is sober. We live in this chronically 
optimistic, like calling someone positive is like the best compliment nowadays. And when things are positive, we should be positive. But when things are not good, we should be okay with calling things not good. Conversely, on the opposite side, another thing good friends do not do is they do not despair in present circumstances. So if one error we can make is minimize, another error we can make is despair. Things will always be like this. Sometimes we need a longer view of history than we have, recognizing that things will be like this for a very long time. Think about this in Jeremiah 29 verses 10 and 11. Thus says the Lord of hosts, when 70 years are completed in Babylon, literally he's saying, it's going to be longer than two, it's going to be 70 years. And just like, suppose Redemption Gateway, if I said, hey, in 70 years, you'll go back to normal. The coronavirus stuff will be gone. Or in 70 years, you know, biblical teaching will have an influential place in the public square in America. You're going, I'm not going to be here to see that, so I don't care. (laughs) Now we're talking about my grandkids. Now we're talking about my great-grandkids. Now we're talking about, you know, maybe some of you who are watching are going like, ah, there's a good shot I'll be here in 70 years. A lot of you who are watching this are going, not a chance I'm here in 70 years. And I sure hope not, because if I am, that means I'll be 150, and that sounds awful. But in 70 years, things will, things will be better. He's so, so he's saying the timeline you want is not the timeline you'll get, but there is a timeline. There is a timeline. We don't want to despair in present circumstances. In 70 years... I'll bring you back to this place. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. He's speaking here collectively to Israel. I have great plans for you. You may not see them. In fact, most of you will not see them. But the plans I have for you have to do with restoration and the end of exile. Sometimes we can be tempted to apply this verse very personally and do so in such a way that we minimize, like, I know that God has good plans for me next week, maybe, hopefully. But even in this moment for us as a church that we're going, how long will this virus thing last? How long until Jesus comes back? How long until the suffering ends? How long until the the ostracism ends? How long until the tribalism ends? How long, oh Lord? The answer is, maybe a very long time. What if that's the case? Will we despair and drift into hopelessness? Things will always be this way. Nothing matters. We might as well give up and throw up our hands and quit and tap out and cease working to love our neighbors. False. No, true hope is saying God has promised he will act in history. God has promised that he is sovereign over what's going on. God has promised that there are no accidents or things out of control. And we need to act and work in faith, trusting that God is the Lord over all history and that his plan will be done. Maybe not on our timeline, but certainly on his timeline. And we know for certain that his timeline is objectively better than our timeline. So we regularly need to grieve the fact that our timeline doesn't take place. We also need to defer to the fact that God is the author of history and he writes better stories than we do. Even as we are isolated and watching church from home, even as there's writing and looting and contention, even as there's political hostility and uh, churches are, 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 are tensuous and politicians are angling and, co- and companies are using it to take more money from you as they market strategically and pointedly in this time, it is hard 
to pay attention and to keep paying attention and it's hard to not throw up your hands and say, what's the point? A couple weeks ago, I was even feeling like, you know what, I might as well go find a stiff breeze and spit into it. That's how much of a difference I can make. What's the point? You start to feel numb, you start to feel apathetic, you start to despair. But that's not the solution that God gives. He says, don't be naively optimistic and think it'll all be over quick. At the same time, don't despair and say it'll always be like this. But this is actually the invitation that Christians have to live in a complicated world with a complicated emotional connection to that world. That there are really highs, there are really lows. And if we find ourselves just getting comfortably numb, as Pink Floyd talked about, we are doing it wrong. So what's the positive vision? We don't want to just throw up our hands. We don't just want to pretend like there aren't problems. Here's the positive vision. Good friends invest in comprehensive well-being. This word shalom here in Jeremiah 29, 7, seek the welfare. That word is shalom. The shalom of the city where I've sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you'll find welfare. This would be insane if you are an Israelite sent into Babylon. Pray that Babylon would thrive. Babylon, the one led by Nebuchadnezzar, the child-murdering, pagan, occultish, sexually deviant, taking over the world, globalized vision of murdering all the nations. We want to pray for and hope that they flourish. You're nuts. Babylon is our enemies. And we're supposed to invest in its flourishing and its comprehensive well-being. We're supposed to pray for Nebuchadnezzar and pray for Babylon. You're crazy. Have you read the newspapers? Have you watched the news? I'm going to pray for its obliteration so that out of the ashes, God's people can rise and blah, 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 blah. The misunderstanding here is, so we, we see in Jeremiah 29, 8, or Jeremiah 28, verse um, uh 10 through um, 17, we hear, or, sorry, Jeremiah 29, verse 1, it says that Nebuchadnezzar had taken Jerusalem into Babylon. And then later on, in verse 4, it says, the Lord says, I have sent you in exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So who did it? Did Nebuchadnezzar do it or did the Lord do it? Well, Jeremiah is able to say yes. Nebuchadnezzar did the evil thing abducting a people and taking them into exile and the Lord Jesus disciplining his children sent his people in the hands of Nebuchadnezzar into exile. So if you look at our present realities, again, a complex reality, we need to both be able to say Nebuchadnezzar is evil, Babylon the Great is opposed to the ways of God and at the same time, God is sovereignly using Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon to work his will for the world. In the context of that, thus says the Lord of hosts, verse 4, the God of Israel, to all the exiles who I sent from exile to Jerusalem and Babylon, build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives, have sons and daughters. Now, if you thought you were going to be in a place only two years, do you build a house? No. If you think you're going to be in a place only two years, do you plant a garden? Well, depending on what the garden is. But if you want to plant vineyards, like Israel did, vineyards that produce wine take up to seven or even more than seven years to even produce grapes good enough to make wine with. So if you're going to start planting vineyards and if you're going to start building houses, you are invested for the long haul. 
And God is saying, I know you don't like being in Babylon. Put down roots. Build houses. Invest in the infrastructure and add value to the society. For in its welfare you find welfare. And this is what's crazy about this whole idea of shalom is that sin is multidirectional and super broken. That sin originates in the heart of man is rebelling against God, but it spills out into so many different directions. Um, one of the things we think about is how sin actually violates and is the obstruction and leads to brokenness in four different directions. First of all, we see it between us and the Lord. I have a little drawing here we're going to show us. It's between us and God. God. Sin separates us from God. It is rebellion. Not your way, but my way. Not your will, my will. Not your moral order, my moral order. But then sin doesn't remain just between us and God, but actually spills out into our psychology. All of a sudden we're separated from ourselves, our insecurity, our arrogance, our skewed vision of what it means to be human. That we become alienated from even ourselves such that we don't even have high self-awareness and we lie to ourselves and our heart is deceitful and there's so much about the way that sin affects our view of ourselves and it messes with our psychology. Thirdly, sin separates us from our work. Genesis 3 talks about how now by the sweat of our brow we'll be able to even work the field and how there will be thorns and thistles in our work separating us from our work, that our work will be laborious rather, rather than just subduing and having dominion and being fruitful and multiplying um, ad infinitum with great abundance. Now it's hard and it's backbreaking and it's difficult. And then also we see that it separates from, us, from other people. In the Genesis 3, the first symptom of sin we see is Adam starts blaming his wife. Then the ripple effect, then brothers are set against themselves and then descendants or nations are set against themselves and then from that point on we see the fabric of society that was meant to be devoted to the relational God ends up being a series of relational breakdowns first between people and God and then collectively socially psychologically vocationally this is one of the biggest problems I see in our current cultural moment is that there are so many major issues facing our society and people constantly want to reduce it down to one single obvious thing. And people get mad at other people when, you don't, when my number one thing isn't your number one thing. And if you don't think racism is number one, then that's because you're a racist. And if you don't think poverty is number one, that's because you're classist. And if you don't think the way that men treat women is number one, that's because you're sexist. And if you don't think that the way evangelical Christians treat LGBTQ people, that's because you're a heteronormative perpetuator of biblical hygienic sexual norms. And we have a label for anyone who doesn't go all in on us on what we think is the number one issue. But here's the reality is the world is complex. That suffering is complex. That the brokenness that we are experiencing is complex. That any type of single variable solution to the world's problems, sociologically speaking, will minimize the present complexity and brokenness of our society that it all springs from and flows downhill from our separation from the Lord, but it actually manifests itself in thousands of different ways. And we need to recognize that our world is complex and that our societies are complex and that our sin manifests itself in complex ways. And this is why he says we need to seek the comprehensive well-being, that we need to help people be reconciled to God through evangelism, telling people, admonishing them, repent and believe the Lord Jesus loves you. 
This is one of the reasons why we have so many different uh, helpful ministries at our church, that the, the, the separation that experiences people with themselves, the psychological, we, we're developing and investing in meaningful counseling practices, that people are alienated from one another, and so we have healthy communities, that children are growing up in insecure homes, and they are, are separated from the Lord from birth, and we're investing in, in kids' programs. And so when we think about actually loving and being the best friend that our community has, this is far less to do with just simply certain outward-focused programs, but it has to do with creating people who can be a transformed, transforming presence in the midst of hostile, broken, complicated, devastating suffering. That when we get the Father's heart, it changes us. And when we're changed, we go and interact with people who are suffering in a thousand ways, who have wacky theology in a thousand ways, who are um, being pushed on in a thousand ways. We can be present with them, just like the Lord Jesus is present with us. And we can listen to them and connect with them and point them to the scriptures and build healthy programs and take active investment in our neighborhoods and build companies and create workplace cultures that help people thrive holistically. You are a culture maker. I am a culture maker. That even as we exist in Babylon, God is softening our hearts. The spirit, the relational being who is present with us is giving us his fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. And more than another social service program, our community needs people marked by the fruit of the Spirit. I'm not saying that it doesn't manifest itself formally and structurally, structurally or legislatively, but it certainly begins by our presence as people who are loved by God. So therefore, if when I know that I'm loved by God, I don't need your approval so I can love you as you need to be loved. This brings us to our last point. Good friends do seek after God with their whole heart. Sometimes we think that being a good friend means just going with the flow in people's lives. A good friend is the one who likes to sin like you. But actually when we think about, biblically speaking, that might be the friend that we want, but it's not the friend that we need. What we need are friends who seek the Lord and love Jesus more than they love us. Here's the promise here, Jeremiah 29 verse 12. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. In Jeremiah's context, he's looking forward to that future time when the Messiah come will come and he'll be found and he'll be present by his spirit and connected and among the people. But for us as Christians, we know that that time has already come. That now, not in the future, we can seek the Lord with our whole heart. A couple of months ago, we had um, someone who I consider a big deal come to town to help speak at a, a, a mini conference that we did and I got to help pick him up from the airport and then he spoke at the thing and then um, it was actually Vicky and I in the car with him and we got to go and drop him off at his uh, hotel and we, we got in the car and started driving and um, they were like, do you know where his hotel is? And I was like, yeah, sure, I know where it is. I, didn't, I thought I knew where it was. 
I didn't really know where it was, but I also kind of thought, if it takes us a while to get there, we'll have a really good conversation along the way. Because here's, here's this guy, he's ahead of this major thing, and I really loved spending time with him, and I thought, I mean, this is precious time, getting to have conversations in the weeds about stuff. And so I wasn't really looking all that hard to find the hotel as fast as possible. I thought I had the general idea, but I thought, we'll meander and we'll get there. And I wasn't consciously thinking this, but I was also just thinking, I'll search for the hotel, but not all that hard. And so we went looking for it. I went to the wrong hotel because I had the wrong hotel in my mind. We kind of went somewhere else, couldn't find it. Anyway, I ended up getting about 40 minutes with this guy that I shouldn't have gotten with him, picking his brain and getting wisdom and hearing him speak into current issues in a variety of situations. And it wasn't until it was like, okay, it's been too long. Let's put the hotel in the map, search, find it. We got there in like nine minutes and got him in his hotel. But it was one of those things where I wasn't seeking after the hotel with my whole heart because there's other things I wanted more than finding the hotel. I kind of wanted it to take a while so that I could spend time with him. And this is the way that we search after God far too often. If I get there, I'll get there. If I find him, I find him. But there's a lot of other stuff I want along the way. And we as Christians need to recognize that we almost never search after God with our whole hearts. Rather, what ends up happening is we search after a thousand things and God is just somewhere on the list. And if I find him, I find him. If I connect with him, I connect with him. And if I grow in my faith, so be it. But what I really want is early retirement. What I really want is political influence. What I really want is well-behaved children. What I really want is a position of respect and prominence in my community. And if I get God along the way, so be it. But it's not my number one. We need to stop seeking after God with half hearted attempts and seek after him with our whole heart because he is available to us. He is present to us. Part of the reason we are numb and tossed to and fro by the winds and ways of journalists and politicians is because we are searching for political and sociological answers with our whole heart and not searching after the Lord with our whole heart. This is the good news of Jesus, is that when we fail to search after him, he sought after us, that he takes initiative, that he took on flesh, that he saw you in your wandering, he saw me in my wandering, he saw us meandering, putting him at number seven, eight, nine, ten on the list, and saw that we were still lovable and pursued us and went towards us and laid his life down and died on the cross so that our sins would be atoned for, that we could be present to him, that what separated us from him would be abolished once and for all. God is available to us now. Will we continue to search with him with half of our hearts? Will we continue to search for him among all the other things? Or will we plug it in on the map and get there? God is being present to you now. God is present with me here and now. And until we recognize that until God is number one, and I'm not saying all the things don't matter and they're not valuable, but all this plurality of voices put our minds in a blender, stresses us out, divides us from ourselves and from others, that we are needlessly suffering when we put God at number two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Not only that, but we cannot fully understand what else is going on in our life until we recognize that God is at the center of creation that our relational God creates a relational universe of people who relate to one another and our community and we need good friends. Not people who use us, not people who will abuse us, not people who will just bring us along so that they can feel a little bit less lonely, but real people who invest in comprehensive well-being, both on an individual relationship basis and a neighborly basis. 
Do you sense the Lord searching after you? Because he is. And I pray that we see that. I pray that we as Redemption Gateway and those of you watching at home, uh, I pray that we can recognize that the Lord is pursuing us and that we can pursue him back and he says, I will be found by you. Why wander aimlessly when God has given us himself and he's given us his word and he says, follow. Let me pray before I respond. Father, I do ask that we would be a people who see how you love us, that we'd sense that we are loved by the Father and that we love you so that we will be about your business, about your mission in the world. God, I pray that we'll be equipped, that our hearts will be made whole, that we will be soft-hearted people full of the fruit of the Spirit such that we can be present friends to our neighbors who need good friends. People who can help them see that God loves them. People who can help them um, understand themselves through the scriptures. People who can redirect them to God's purpose for their life. God, energize us. Help us see. And I pray that we'd seek after you with our whole hearts instead of searching after something else with our whole hearts. In the name of your Son, who is gracious to us, we pray. Amen.